Morning, guys. Take your uh, your sheet that says four views of the millennium, the notes from last time, and let me uh, just add a couple of things. Wait, what? What's that? Yeah. You think my shoes need to be shined? You think my shoes need to be shined? What's wrong with my shoes? What? <laughs> you want my shoes and some money? All right. You'd love to shine my shoes. Would you like to shine anybody else's shoes here in this room? So, okay, all right. So you want my shoes, and then you want anybody else's shoes here who would give you their shoes and some money, right? For missions, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, you may just ask people to raise their hand if they have some shoes for you to shine. All right. If you got your shoes to shine, would you just raise your hand? And we got some shoes shined, guys. It'll pick them up. All right. Looks like you got one pair there, pal. That's about it. Preachers are known to be big tippers, though, so I wouldn't worry about it. All right. Just raise your hand if you want him to pick up your shoes. Of course, you'll never see them again. You'll never see them. Have you ever heard of barefoot missionaries? No. Why? Because they've got your shoes from the last amen class. That's why. All right. Uh, take your uh, four views of the millennium. Let me just add the, these words on the front page. It says pre-tribulational or pre-tribulation. That should be pre-tribulational Premillennialism. And the next one is post-tribulation. That should be post-tribulational premillennialism. So those are both premillennial, those on the front page. And then you see amillennialism and postmillennialism on the second page. Well, <laughs> we, we grunted our way through it last week. It was interesting, your reaction. Some of you said, boy, that was just really interesting. You know, I've been thinking about these millennium pictures, you know, and Got it, got it all sorted out last time, and I really appreciate it. And some of you said, man, that was just, you know, boom, right over my head. And then you said, you know, the last two minutes were great. <laughs> and the last two minutes were the bottom of page two, where we all agree. And you know what? Uh, I said to you last time, I still think it's true. Uh, I hope the thing that you really remember from last week were the last two minutes. And, you know, we, we spend about 50 minutes just showing how complex these different interpretive frameworks are for the millennium. And we spent the last two minutes showing you where we all agree, even with all of our diversity, we agree on these things. And these are the things that really make an eternal difference. And I believe are going to make a difference at your work today. Uh, those, those last points. Jesus Christ is coming back. We must learn how to wait. Uh, every human being is going to be resurrected. Every human being you've ever known in your life or ever will meet, every human being around the world will be resurrected and judged. And believers will go to heaven. Believers in what? Believers in Jesus Christ will go to heaven. Of course, that's the reason that our mission to our city and our mission to the world is so important is because that's the only way people are going to go to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. You say, oh, I don't believe that. I'm not that narrow-minded. I understand. Uh, you certainly have a right to your own opinion. And I suppose that what I'm saying this morning is definitely in the minority of the opinions of folks uh, even in this city. But it's what the Bible says. So all I'm trying to teach is what the Bible says. I hope what you're trying to believe is what the Bible says. And Jesus himself said, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And when Peter was preaching on, uh, in uh, Jerusalem after Pentecost, he said, there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So uh, we, can all, we all hold a right to our opinion, and uh, thank the Lord that in this country you won't be shot for disagreeing with, uh, with the majority. Uh, so you have a right to believe what you want to believe, but the Scriptures clearly teach it. And that's the reason that these things are so important. 
And then lastly, isn't it interesting, the Bible is true. All four views uh, that are represented on pages one and two believe the Bible is true. And we may disagree on certain aspects of the Bible's teaching, but we believe the Bible is true and we continue to struggle to understand it. And no matter what view you hold, let's hold our view lightly, especially in light of the cardinal doctrines that are listed there, and let us hold it lightly with each other and listen to each other and learn from each other. And uh, we'll probably all amend our views one way or another uh, through time. Well, that was uh, the introduction to the framework of understanding the meaning of the millennium. That is, what is its chronology? And you can see the basic idea in premillennialism is that Jesus Christ comes before the millennium, pre-millennial. And then the millennium is ushered in after His coming for a thousand years. Post-tribulationalism believes that Christ comes at the end of the millennium. Uh, his parousia, or His second coming, is at the end. Uh, in fact, um, uh, or I'm sorry, that His coming is uh, yeah at the end of the millennium. And when you look at postmillennialism on page two, there should be an arrow coming down at the end of that thousand years, just as in amillennialism. So you can put that in there too. Christ's second coming. In amillennialism, we notice that it is a version of postmillennialism. Uh, it that is that Christ comes at the end of the millennium. But we saw that in amillennialism, which frankly is the framework that I'm going to use today as we begin our study of Revelation 20, that uh, Christ comes in his first advent, and ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. That ushers in the age of the Spirit, or what we call the church age, and what uh, I am calling the millennium. Um, You'll see that I believe that the millennium, which just means 1,000 years, is a symbol. There are many numerical symbols we've seen in Revelation. The symbol of four, the symbol of seven, the symbol of 144,000, which is to mean the whole church. And there, here we have uh, the symbol of a thousand, which is to mean a long period of time. And at the end of that uh, church age or that millennium, as you see under the framework of amillennialism, there is a greater tribulation at the end of that period. And we'll see the meaning of that in just a moment. And then at the end of the millennium is Christ's second coming. So basically the framework we're going to be using in our study today is that the millennium is the period that we're now in. And it's the period between the two advents of Christ. His first advent and his second advent. And this is the period that you might call the provisional period or uh, the um, period between the ages uh, that we're going to call the millennium. Let's look at uh, chapter 20 of Revelation. And just very quickly, this is a sort of fourfold outline of Revelation 20. There are four major events that happen in Revelation 20. We're going to take two weeks to unpack them. The first event is that Satan is bound, and we'll look at the meaning of that. The second event is that the saints are enthroned with Christ. They reign with Him. And we'll see about what the meaning of that is. Then we have a recapitulation of the last battle that occurs in verses 7 through 10. And then in 11 through 15, we'll see what some call the great white throne judgment. The judgment of God, he opens the book of life and he opens the books that record all of our behavior and all are judged. So now that's what's happening in Revelation chapter 20. Let's look at the, at the first six verses and then uh, we'll be looking primarily at these first two points, 
next week at the latter two points. This is Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Okay, we have seen that the millennium is the period between the advents of Christ, so-called church age. Now, what I'd like to do in a few moments is to show you specifically why I think this is true, looking at some of the evidence in the book of Revelation itself. First of all, uh, if one were to compare Revelation 20, 22 to Ezekiel 37 and 48, you would see a lot of parallels. Uh, first of all, you'd see the resurrection of God's people in both Revelation 20 and Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. You'd see the Messianic kingdom. One would see the final battle. And one would see the new temple and the new Jerusalem. And you notice the progression in Revelation and the progression in Ezekiel. So basically, what we have in this section, and we saw this when we studied Revelation 19, is that there is a lot of reference to Ezekiel. Ezekiel's format is basically driving the paradigm that John's using in his vision. And some of you, because we, we assign those texts for daily reading, some of you have been in Ezekiel lately, and no doubt you've noticed this, that there are many, many similarities. So we're going to see uh, a parallel going through Revelation 20. Now, of course, you'll get this next week, so don't worry about all those notes. I just want to quickly uh, take a look at the reasons for seeing Revelation 20 the way that we are. Now, what's interesting is that Ezekiel 39 recapitulates 38. What we are saying is that Revelation 20 recapitulates history, taking us all the way back to the first advent and going to the end of time. The premillennial perspective, remember, is to see Revelation 20 chronologically following Revelation 19. That's the reason to, that they are premillennial, because Christ comes in 19, remember, on the white horse, and the millennium then follows in 20. So you have Christ coming and then the millenniums, thus premillennialism. What the postmillennialist and the amillennialist is saying, there's something important happening at Revelation 20, verse 1, 
And that is, we're recapitulating all the way back to the beginning of, of uh, Christ's uh, inter-advent period. All, recapitulating all the way back to the first advent. Now, the reason that this Ezekiel recapitulation is so important is that if we're being led by Ezekiel, if John is, is using the Ezekiel paradigm, then he's recapitulating just like Ezekiel does. And you, if you look at Ezekiel sometime, you'll see that recapitulation. Notice another problem for the premillennialists. There are no survivors after 1921. It says in chapter 19, verse 21, the rest of them were killed with a sword. Well, if they were killed, then how do we have a last battle? How do we have people left? So, if it is chronological, you have a problem there, and that's not the only one. I just picked that one out. Revelation 15.1 says that God's wrath has been completed. If His wrath has been completed, why do we have more wrath in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 20? So, obviously... You're getting recapitulations as you go through Revelation. There's, now, uh, whether you would agree with the recapitulation at 20 verse 1, which is a scholarly debate, you'd have to say there's recapitulation going on because statements are made that otherwise just wouldn't be true. Daniel 7 itself exhibits, exhibits recapitulation. So now I, what I'd like to do in just a moment, and if you want to mark this in your Bible, you can do that, but I'm going to give you what I consider to be seven ways or seven times in which the book of Revelation goes from the first advent to the second advent and covers all of that history. I believe it happens seven times in Revelation. If you turn back to Revelation chapter 4, I'm just going to give these to you, and later on you can see if this fits and makes some sense to you. Revelation 4.1 is the beginning of the first cycle. So I'd, I'd just recommend just put a 1 and circle it by 4.1. That takes us all the way through the seals until we come to chapter 8, verse 2. And I want to suggest to you there's the second cycle. And we get into the trumpets. Okay? So the seals are the first cycle just taking us all the way through history. And then remember, like a wave on the seashore, it now uh, wanes, and now it's going to come forward again. And it starts coming forward at 8-2. So we have the trumpets. And that takes us all the way to the end of chapter 11, so that at chapter 12, verse 1, we have our third cycle showing us all of history. And isn't it obvious? In chapter 12, you have the great uh, dragon, seeking to devour the child, which is Jesus. The child is taken up to heaven in the ascension. Then the dragon tries to destroy the mother, which is the church, who goes into the wilderness, remember, for, for those three and a half years. And she's spared. And that's the period that we're in now. So you see, that was very obvious when we were going through chapter 12. And we'll look at the parallels of 12 in just a moment. So the third cycle goes through 12 and 13 and 14. And then at chapter... 15, we pick up the seven angels with the seven plagues, the seven bowls of wrath. And at 15.1, we have the beginning of the fourth cycling through history. And now John is going to take us through the history between the advents again. And so in 15 and 16, we have the fourth cycle. The fifth cycle picks up at 17.1. 
And once again here, remember, we have who? The, the woman on the beast. The harlot on the beast. We saw that the harlot is the whole system of Babylon. The whole system of worldliness. Well, what's he doing? He's just looking at history between the first advent and the second advent again from the perspective of this harlot. And we see her destruction at the end. And so that cycle takes us all the way through 17, 18, and 19, verse 10. And at 19:11, we have the, another cycle of history where we have Jesus coming on the white horse. And, of course, that's abbreviated in terms of what happens before his coming. Each of these cycles has its own emphasis. For example, the seals and the trumpets, we saw that the emphasis is on God's active judgment in time right now. That a lot of the things that are happening, the disasters, are God's judgment coming on time, in time on those who are persecuting and resisting the church. Here in 1911, through the end of chapter 19, is an emphasis on the last day when Jesus Christ comes back. But it's another cycle, another way of looking at it. And then when you get to chapter 20, verse 1, I'm suggesting to you, because of all these things, that we have the beginning of another cycle that takes us through the end of chapter 20. So chapter 20 is really the seventh cycling of history. So now you see how John is doing this. It's uh, chapters that are looking at the same period of time in seven different ways, emphasizing seven different things. It's very helpful once you get the, the, the rhythm and the framework of Revelation. And then you can start to put some of these pieces together. Well, let's look, for example, at the parallel between uh, Revelation 20, 1 through 6, the passage we're studying today, and chapter 12. You have at the beginning of 12, verse 7, a heavenly scene, just like you do in 20, verse 1. And so you can see these, how these cycles are parallel. And this is just a quick illustration. You have Satan thrown down to the earth in 12.9 and into the abyss in 23. So you have a heavenly scene. Satan is thrown down out of heaven. And you have him called the devil or Satan in both instances. And then you have him let loose for a brief time in chapter 12, verse 12, and in chapter 20, verse 3. You have clearly Satan's fall from power and authority in both instances. And then you have the saint's kingship expressed in both. So clearly you're getting, with this parallelism, we can see that there is a progressive parallelism, progressive parallelism in Revelation 4 through 20. Seven cycles in those chapters. Now, that's the reason that we're using the amillennial framework. I may be wrong. Others may be wrong on this. But th these are the reasons, if you're wondering, that it seems you're looking at the text itself. And I haven't mentioned any reasons yet outside of Revelation. We'll look at those in just a moment. There are theological or other biblical theological reasons to see this as the teaching of the Scriptures as well. Now, how long is the millennium? Uh, the Many premillennialists would say that it is clearly a 1,000-year period from the second coming of Christ till the end of that millennium when there's a rain set upon the earth. And you'll notice, of course, in Revelation 20 that the rain is in heaven. That uh, there's not a uh, mention about Jesus Christ reigning on the earth during that millennium. It's a rain in heaven, which suggests that it's now, in my opinion. 
And some post-millennialists would suggest that it is a literal 1,000-year period. But you've seen that we have said there are many numbers that are used symbolically in the book of Revelation, and we believe that this is one of those times. This is the chapter where you get the mention of millennium. The millennium is not taught throughout the Bible specifically. It is taught in, say, in principle, uh, as we shall see. But the word itself is here. And so when you're thinking about building your whole theological framework on this one concept, that's a little, a little narrow in terms of dealing with the scope of Scripture. I think what I'd suggest you do is look at the whole scope of Scripture and let it develop your framework and bring that theological framework to your study of Revelation. Okay, so that, that is why we're looking at this 20th chapter uh, in the way that we are. So the, the next and, and main question for the morning is this. What is the meaning of this millennium? Why does John even tell us about this vision? Why does Jesus reveal it to us this way? What do we need to know and what difference does it make? Well, in the first three chapters, we're going to see this. Satan is vanquished on the earth. That's the meaning of the millennium. He's cooked. He's toast. He knows it. He's been defeated. He's been vanquished. D-Day has already occurred. You know, on June the 6th, here again, we're going to celebrate D-Day, the great landing on the beaches of Normandy. And when that landing took place, we lost more men after that landing than we did before the landing. The war was not over. There was a lot of sacrifice to be paid yet. A lot of pain to be endured. A lot of widows created. Very lonely mothers and fathers lost their sons. But when D-Day took place, that was the beginning of the end. That courageous storming of those beaches uh, in Normandy. So that is has what has happened with the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's still sacrifice to be paid. So people are going to die because of their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the victory has basically been assured by D-Day. And that's what's happened. Satan is vanquished on the earth. Let me tell you something, guys. That makes a huge difference. If you're on the side of the Allies... You don't want to switch, especially after D-Day. You'd be a dummy. You're going to go over to the losing side. What the millennium is teaching you is you're a dummy if you're going to switch sides right now. Because the victory has been won by the cross. We're in the mopping up operation. We're moving toward VE day And that's going to happen very soon. So hang on. Fight the battle. Even if it costs you your life in this life, you get your life back in the next life. So you're going to win. So don't change sides. Satan is vanquished on the earth. Now, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, you see that he is bound by God's angel. And you see language like this, the angel having the key to the abyss. We believe this is the same keys that the Lord Jesus had to death and Hades in chapter 1. When he's presented in all of his glory, he's holding the key to life and death. And he now sends an emissary, an angel, to deal with the dragon. You notice that Jesus Christ doesn't even have to deal with it himself. He just a flick of the wrist. And one of his key angels is down there fighting the devil. He's holding a great chain. What do you think he plans to do with that chain? He's not going to beat him over the head with it necessarily. He's going to take him and bind him up. Uh, and it's a symbol of the power given to that angel to constrain the evil one. Gentlemen, there's a lot of confusion in our age as we, as we think about the relationship between good and evil and angels and demons. And uh, I have to say that a, a lot of the emphasis on uh, demons, uh, in some ways, has been useful to the church because 
we've just gotten ourselves thinking there are no such things. And as soon as you think that, you really be in trouble. And if you think there's no personal devil and you don't have an enemy of your soul, then you are, you are cooked. So it's been good that we've had an emphasis to realize these things are going on. But on the other hand, there's been a fear of the demons and of Satan himself, which is not healthy. There's been an idea that if we don't pray enough, the demons will take over. That Satan will win the battle. That we need to pray to empower the angels or some sort of theology. That's, that's ridiculous. If there's one group that knows who's in charge, it's the demons themselves. And they know that Christ has conquered them and rules over them. And so they are under duress. They are controlled. Christ is in control of the underworld. And that's the reason that they are so angry. And that the language of seizing the dragon and using the name devil, which means slanderer. You realize the devil is the one who's behind all the slander that's ever been said about you. Every time you've been slandered, that's the work of the devil. That's one of his favorite tactics is to slander you and to accuse you. And uh, Satan means adversary. So he's opposed to you. He's seeking to ruin your reputation. He's seeking to build up animosity against you. It's his strategy. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. And then, of course, the angel binds him for a thousand years. So the angel is given power to bind this this uh, Satan. So this is the meaning of the millennium. Now, how does this fit in to this period in which we live now? Often, when you would have read Revelation, you would have thought, well, this is going to happen at the end of time. That there's going to be this big cataclysmic moment when God's going to send an angel down from heaven and he's going to take care of that devil who's been oppressing me. No, what's happened is he's already done this. Now, why do I say that? Take your Bibles and let's look at a couple of passages in the Scriptures. Look at Mark 3, or let me, let's look at a parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. Turn to Matthew 12. This is a parallel passage from Mark 3. And notice that the Pharisees were arguing with Jesus and said in verse 24, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So Jesus is driving out demons. Let's back up here just a minute. He Remember, before he begins his ministry, he goes into the wilderness. Satan tempts him three times. Jesus uses the power of the Word of God to confront him. We're told the devil leaves him and angels come to minister to him. That's at the end of the 40 days in the wilderness. When Jesus begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1, you remember what happens? He goes around teaching. And what happens? As soon as he begins teaching... The devil starts, the demons start to come out. We just see them, it's almost like they're coming out of the woodwork. Why? Because Jesus is preaching the truth, and they're the, the children of lies. Satan is the father of lies, we're told. So all the demons are liars. Jesus is telling the truth, and they're liars. So they're angry. Jesus also comes proclaiming a kingdom, a dominion to take away from the devil what he has previously been ruling. And we're going to see the meaning of that worldwide in just a moment. But Jesus proclaims Himself as King and that there is a kingdom of God and it is here. That is what provokes the devil and the demons so much. 
they come out and Jesus begins to muzzle them. He says to them, be muzzled, and they shut up. He says, come out of that man, and they come out. And so he is casting out, he is throwing out the demon and the demons from their oppression of the people of Israel. And he comes to liberate them from the power of the devil. You see this mighty cataclysmic conflict between Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, and those of the underworld. It's a major battle going all the way through the Gospels. It's an encounter between the hosts of heaven and those of hell. Now, what happens then is the Pharisees are trying to explain this. And they have seen, I mean, they, there have been exorcisms before Jesus Christ, and there certainly have been demonic evidences before Christ, and you see that in some rabbinic literature before Christ. And they had their formulas, rabbinical formulas, to cast out demons and so on, uh, none of which Jesus really used. Jesus just declared his own authority and cast out those demons. But the Pharisees had no explanation for this. They had never seen anything like this. Well, of course they hadn't. The king of kings had not come to earth and landed before to take over. But they're seeing all this, this spiritual power, and here's their explanation. Jesus of Nazareth is demonic. He's the prince of the demons. That's the reason that they do what He says. Because He's demonic Himself. And He's the ruler over them. That's their explanation. Isn't it interesting? When you don't like something, you just make up something you know, to justify your own behavior. People are still doing it today. And it is demonic. You want to know who, who the demons were working with? Was it Jesus or the Pharisees? The demons were working with religious people who were coming up with ridiculous explanations to explain the changes that Jesus was getting ready to make in their lives. So that's the reason they say uh, in verse 24, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, look at verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's saying, look, demons are devilish. But they're not stupid. And if someone who's the prince of demons is casting them out of where they want to stay, how can that kingdom have any power whatsoever? It'd be completely divided. So it's just a, it's just a rational, reasonable argument. If I'm the prince of demons, I'm not going to be taking them out of where they don't want to go. I'm going to be the one who causes them to take over more people's lives, not fewer. doesn't make any sense what you're saying. And, of course, that doesn't make any sense when people are opposing Christ. Then look at verse 29. Here's the key to understanding Jesus and His ministry to the underworld. Or again, verse 29, How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. This is a very important verse. Jesus is saying, I can't come and do what I do with the demons 
unless I have bound, same word as used in Revelation 20, unless I have bound the strong man. And then I can take whatever I want. I've bound him. I've constrained him. That's the meaning of my appearance, he's saying to them. I have come and bound the strong man. That's right out of the Gospels, right out of the lips of Jesus Christ. So, when you look in the Gospels, you will see that what we're saying about the millennium is consistent with what Jesus was saying about his own time. That his first advent was to come take charge. It was come to bind the evil one, and he sent an angel to do it. Then you'll notice that he is thrown into the abyss. He is assigned to uh, hellish places. And it wasn't a cooperative venture, I'll tell you that. And sometimes in the ministry of Jesus, it looks as though he is cooperating. I think I mentioned to you the passage in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, where he goes into the land of the Gerasenes, a Gentile land that was known for its devil worship. Jesus goes there and meets a man who had 6,000 demons, we believe, because we're told his name was Legion. And a legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers. He calls himself legion. And Jesus casts out the de- these demons and they go into the pigs. That's exactly what the demons asked for. They said, don't send us out of the region. Send us into the pigs. So Jesus looks like he's cooperating. Kind of like a salesman, you know. You kind of barter and get the best price you can. And go, you know, or a politician. You know, you can't get all you want. But just get as much as you can on this compromise. It looks like Jesus compromised, stepped out of the way and let those... Demons go into the pigs as they requested. But then you notice those pigs go off the edge of the cliff into the lake. And in Hebrew cosmology, where is the abyss? It's at the bottom of the sea. That's how you access the abyss. So what Jesus was doing was consigning Satan right where he's supposed to be bound and thrown into the abyss. And he sends those demons right back to hell where they belong. And he shows that he has total dominion even over the land of the Gentiles. Even over land that says, Jesus can't get in here. This is not His territory. Jesus says, oh yes it is. And He takes His disciples in there and rids it of its unclean spirits. And rids it of its unclean pigs. So that His dominion may be established there on that foreign soil. He takes over that pig farm and takes over that country. So we see that Jesus comes to exercise tremendous power in His first coming. That is the reason that when you get to Colossians 2, verse 15, and the Apostle Paul is describing the work on the cross, he says that he made a public spectacle of all the principalities and authorities and powers and nailed them to the cross, triumphing over them by the cross. So there is a, there is a final triumph at the cross when he breaks the power of the evil one. So to say... That we're waiting for the devil to be bound is to say that we are exercising spiritual power for 2,000 years because, you know, we're just a little more clever than we used to be. No. The reason that the kingdom has busted out all over the world is that Christ has come and D-Day has occurred and He has bound the evil one. He hasn't destroyed Him yet. He hasn't permanently consigned Him to hell yet. It's not as though the devil can't still do some damage. But he is seriously constrained. And you see that in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see the results of it today. So he is assigned to the abyss, which is death and Hades, as we see in verses 18 of chapter 1 and 8 of chapter 6. 
And in Luke 10, you can look there if you want to. In Luke 10, you have another very interesting episode in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. The beginning of Luke 10, Jesus has sent out the disciples, the 70 or 72, two by two. Why 72 or why 70? Some scholars suggest that the 70 represents the nations in Genesis chapter 10 and that Jesus is symbolizing here that He's sending His disciples out into all the nations. I suggest that the 70 or 72 has more to do with the end of Genesis and the first part of Exodus where you have the family of Jacob in Egypt who are 70 or in some places 72 or as Stephen says in his sermon, 75. But it's a number that represents all the children of Israel. And I believe what Jesus is doing when He sends out the 72 is sending out the new Israel. All the church, sending them out. So missions is not something that you pay for or pray for only. You do pay for it and you do pray for it. But you do it. We're part of Israel. We're part of the church. And He sends out His whole church. And you'll notice He sends them two by two. And He sends them out in Luke chapter 10 to have authority over the demonic world and to proclaim the kingdom. They are His advanced men. Jesus is getting ready to go through Samaria. He sends them out two by two into every town and village where He's going to be going. They're advanced men. Guess what we are? Advanced men. We're in this little village of Memphis, Tennessee, and we are the advanced men who are telling people there's the big cheese is right behind us. The boss is coming. And I'm his advanced man to tell you a couple of things and how you need to get this place ready for when he comes back. There are some things we need to do here. We need to exercise justice. We need to exercise neighborly love. We need to clean up the mess around here and all the moral impurity in our own city. Let's get it ready because the king is coming. That's what they were to do. They were to go in to these towns and villages and proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick. Hey, how do I heal the sick, Jesus? God can hear them say, well, you understand how you heal the sick? You expect me to heal the sick? Yeah, why? Because I'm going to give you power. And He gave them power for their mission. Now, by the time you get to verse 17 in Luke 10, these disciples are thrilled. <laughs> because, well, look at what they say in 17. They, they report back to Him from their mission. And they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in Your name. So here are the missions, missionaries going out and they're realizing that Christ has given them power to do some of the things He had been doing from the beginning of His ministry. And they're thrilled with this power that they have. And gentlemen, I'm saying to you, when you engage the mission of Christ, when you give your life to Him, when you seek your, to want to do His work instead of build your own kingdom, you'll find a tremendous power that He gives you in your life. And you too will be thrilled when you engage His mission. Some of you perhaps have been involved in personal evangelism, as have I. And you know, when you come back and you report to others the results where people's hearts have been opened and you've been used of God to lead people to Christ, there's nothing more thrilling than that other than your own salvation. And that's the way these disciples were. Now notice what Jesus said. He said in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power, all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. 
I see Satan falling like lightning. Does this sound familiar to anybody? It's right like the book of Revelation where he falls down from heaven in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 20. He is being kicked out of heaven by the first coming of Christ. Christ came from heaven, was incarnate on the earth to engage the enemy and to destroy his place of sovereignty in heaven itself. Now, he never was the total sovereign one, but he had much more influence before the incarnation than after the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So, by the time Jesus gets back to heaven, guess what? devil ain't there anymore. (laughs) He's been kicked out. And Jesus is reigning in heaven with no snide remarks, no whispering in the ear, no backbiting in that community, no dissonance whatsoever. It is an unrivaled sovereignty in heaven. So heaven's been purged of its opposition, and Satan does not have access to the throne any longer. So there's been a massive change in this world from the first coming of Jesus Christ that sometimes I fear we don't quite understand, and we enjoy his power without knowing quite where it came from. Now, you'll notice, thirdly, in verse 3, that the abyss is locked and sealed. Now, look at the meaning of this. To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. This is at the heart of what's going on with the conquering of the devil by Christ's first advent. He has been he has been seized, bound, thrown into the abyss, the lid's put on it, and it's locked and sealed. Now that's a symbol for this for this very concept. You have the interpretation of it given for you in the Revelation that he does not keep deceiving the nations. He was deceiving the nations, but he is no longer deceiving the nations. This does not mean that Satan can do you no harm anymore. He can. He can kill you. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can simply kill, take your body. Fear the one who can take your body and after doing that, throw your soul into hell. That's the one you need to fear. His name is God. Don't fear the one who can just mess with your body. Fear the one who can mess with your eternal life. And that's God. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, we're taught. So even though we know that bad things can happen to us in this life, we're men for eternity. And we refuse to fear temporal things. It's like fearing getting a flu shot. Nobody likes to get a flu shot. But it's better than having a flu and dying from the flu, isn't it? And so we don't fear those temporal things because we fear eternal uh, things. Well, what does this mean? Let's look at a couple of passages. Uh, John 12 in particular, this will be a familiar passage to you. Uh, he says in verse 31, uh, Now, this is Jesus speaking, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now, the prince of this world will be driven out. All right? He says, now is the day of judgment. And what day is this? It's this hour, remember, that Jesus talks about in John's Gospel. I'm going to take you back to our study several years ago. The hour has not yet come, he says. What is that hour? The hour of his crucifixion. Now, he says in chapter 12, now is the hour. We're moving toward Calvary right now in John chapter 12. We start to move into the passion narratives 
following that. Now is the hour. Judgment has come. And he says, the devil, the prince of this world, will be driven out. So the cross is going to be the final solution for the driving out of the devil. And then look how he puts it then in the next verse. He says, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will do what? Draw all men to myself. You see the parallel? He's saying, I've come to conquer the evil one. The cross is going to be the crucial moment that brings judgment on him and on all of evil. Then I'm going to be lifted up, and not just by the cross, although I believe that's the, the primary way in which he means he's being lifted up, but he's also being lifted up in the ascension. He's being lifted up in his rule. And he's going to draw all men. What does he mean by all men? He means people from all around the world, not just the Jewish nation. He's going to draw all men to himself. Because you see, in the Old Testament, God had commanded the Israelites to reach the world. Abraham had been told, you have been blessed in order to be a blessing. And that's exactly what we've been told. If God's blessing is upon you, it's for a purpose, and that is to bless this city, bless this country, and bless this world. And you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no right to simply luxuriate in the blessings He's given you. They're meant to be given to others. We are sheep fattened for the slaughter. That's our purpose in this life, is to give ourselves away for the kingdom of God, for the advancement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in this world, and for the salvation of people and, and for the help of people around us, just like Jesus did. He's saying when He's lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself because... Israel was told to reach the world, but they never did. We're given the picture in Isaiah that ultimately the nations will stream to Jerusalem, to the throne of God. It's a centripetal work. It comes from the outside in. The nations will stream. What you notice at the coming of Christ, he defeats the evil one, and now the promise of the Old Testament comes true in his life, and now we are really reaching the nations. And initially, it doesn't look like it is centripetal. It looks like it's centrifugal. That we're going out to the world. But what you will ultimately find when we get to Revelation 21, 22, it is centripetal. Because we go out to the nations to reach the world, but the nations will stream to the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down from above, where Christ is King. So the nations will stream into the Zion of God as predicted in the Old Testament. But what Jesus is doing is enacting what was promised in the Old Testament by killing and conquering, not killing, but conquering and binding the major enemy, Satan himself. He will no longer deceive the nations. Now, that means, of course, that, that we ought to expect a major movement around the world. And gentlemen, I just say to you, look, today, 17,000 people on the continent of Africa will come to Christ. Today, 20,000 Chinese will come to Christ. Today, there are probably 80 million Christians in China. Probably more genuine Christians in China than in America. This year, there will be about 10,000 churches planted in Uttar Pradesh in the northern part of India that was known as the Graveyard of Missionaries for a century. And we are now seeing on the graves of those missionaries who gave their lives and led a little handful of people to Christ, we're seeing boatloads of people coming to Christ. There are 300 million 
We used to call them untouchables, the Dalits, the, the lowest caste of people in India who are in the uprising now. And these Hindus are coming to Christ by the thousands. Yes, by the hundreds of thousands. There's a major movement in India right now. In Kazakhstan, there are hundreds of churches being planted among Muslims. Muslims are coming to Christ in Kazakhstan. This is very interesting to me because we're not having as much success among the Arabs yet. We're still spending ourselves like those missionaries in India did for a hundred years and not seeing a whole lot of results. But I think I see the Lord up to something. The non-Arab Muslims in Kazakhstan being reached first. Guess who's then going to go to Arab Muslim world? It will be the non-Arab Muslims from other parts of the world. I don't know. Maybe. Sounds like God to me. But we're seeing hundreds and thousands of churches being planted in the Muslim world right now this year. There are major things happening in this world. The, the ratio between uh, real believers in Christ and unbelievers in this world is rapidly growing. So that now there are only a few unbelievers for every believer in this world. It's amazing what has happened in the past 100 years is that number has just gone way down of the number of believers, I'm sorry, the number of unbelievers per believer in this world. We are seeing a major movement that has been just catapulted, has catapulted the church into this last century. Why? One simple reason. When Jesus Christ came, He bound the evil one from deceiving the nations any longer. That day is over. And you're seeing the church established on every continent and one day in every country. There are 24,000 ethno people, ethno language, ethno linguistic groups. And there are only about 7,000 of them left to have a witness of Christ in those ethnic, those ethno linguistic groups. We're making incredible progress. So we can see the fulfillment of what's being said here. Then, fourthly, Satan will have a last gasp. And for those of you who are familiar with 2 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, I believe this is what it is. The man of lawlessness comes when he's let out at the end of this age. So at the end of the millennium, uh, from what we're seeing in, in the end of verse 3, he will be let out for a short time, which of course will initiate the last battle uh, that we'll see uh, in the next part of Revelation. Now, uh, in the four minutes we have left, we've got three verses to cover. Satan, on the one hand, is vanquished on the earth, but the saints are victorious in heaven. This is the meaning of the millennium. That we're reigning. Your father and your mother, your grandparents who knew Jesus Christ, they are not just kind of floating around wondering what's going to happen. They are in charge. They're reigning with Christ. They're ruling over the angels. They are celebrating the great victory of Jesus Christ. And they're waiting for you to get there. We don't just sit around wondering when the party's going to start. The party has already begun. It hasn't reached its climax yet. That will happen when Jesus Christ comes back visibly to the earth and purges all of the cosmos from all of its evil. But they're not just twiddling their thumbs. They are ruling and reigning. They have authority to judge. Right now, they are judging angels. Those who have gone before us. Those who have paid the price. It's an amazing thing. That's the reason that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, What a shame for two brothers who are at odds with each other about some temporal piece of property in this life, some business deal, 
have to go to the civil courts to get a judgment. And Paul just says, shame on you for that. He says, can't you judge these matters yourselves? Is there not enough wisdom in this room right here to judge the matters that come up among us, he says? Don't you know, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, that you are to judge angels? Can you not judge in matters, these simple earthly matters that we have? I know sometimes there are complexities. But can't you give your time to it and devote your energy to it so that we bring peace and righteousness among ourselves? Look, I'm all for the civil courts. I'm not trashing the civil courts. And some of you serve in the civil courts. And the more of you, the merrier. We need some more help in the civil courts. We've got cases backed up at almost every level. So I'm all for the civil courts, and they are a gift of God. And they have delegated authority from God because God gives the civil authorities His authority. So I'm no way trashing the civil courts. What I'm trashing is your behavior when you have to use civil courts instead of church courts. Christ's people resolve their conflicts among themselves. Now, if you are a partner in a business or you're part of a corporation and you get at odds with some other brothers of yours who are in another corporation, it's fine to go to the civil courts. Corporations are not Christians. Individuals are Christians. Corporations have their own entity. So I'm not suggesting that every case you're ever involved in, even when Christians are involved, should go to the, the church courts. What I'm saying is when you have a dispute with a brother, it's between you and a brother, then I don't think you should be going to civil courts. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6. And most of our churches represented in this room, we have no way of handling this. We haven't even thought about it. You say, I, this is weird stuff. What do I do? Who do I go to in the church? I go to my pastor and say, oh, I don't know what to do with that. Why? Because the church has surrendered its obligation to bring peace and righteousness among the brethren. Look, the civil courts have a legitimate interest in equity, in fairness, in property rights, and they should judge according to law. That's good. The church has an interest in equity. It also has an interest in reconciliation between the parties, an issue the civil courts has no interest in. It's not properly before them. That's not their business to reconcile you with your brother. It's the church's business to rule on the uh, matter of equity and to give a judgment. And it is the business of the, of the church court to see that reconciliation takes place between the brothers. That's the reason Paul says, don't you realize you've gotten far more wisdom than the unconverted? We'll use the, the unconverted courts when we need to. We'll have converted people in the unconverted courts. And they'll serve honorably and necessarily. But you brothers, let's get business done among yourselves. Why? Because you have authority to judge, for heaven's sakes. We suffer greatly... And we remain faithful to the Lord. And then at the end of that, we come back to life to reign. And then, of course, you can see the rest of this. Let me just close with this because our time is up. Here's the big deal. The big deal is your big enemy is defeated. You're victorious. D-Day has already occurred. VE Day is coming soon. So keep fighting the battle. You're on the winning side. Second thing is, if you die, you don't lose, you win. And if you knew how great it was to die in the Lord, you'd probably all go out here and be tempted to commit suicide. When Amy Carmichael, the great missionary, had an older woman come help serve her on the mission field in India who was complaining one day and said to Amy, 
you know, the doctor says if I just lean over the wrong way, I could have a heart attack and die. And Amy said, how do you resist the temptation? If we only knew how great it was, we wouldn't really want to be spending a life here except to serve others. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. That's the reason we're here, is to serve others. The big reward is right ahead of you. It's just on the other side of that veil. And so, gentlemen, we leave here with a sense of victory, a sense of ascendancy. We're Christians. If you're a follower of Christ, you're on the winning side. And you go out now with that sense of confidence and you humble yourself in this life. That's the proper thing to do because you're in your flesh. It's, but your time has not yet come. So it's proper for you to humble yourself. But as you humble yourself today before men and before organizations, before this world, you humble yourself as you're supposed to do. Just remember this. It's coming a day when this world's going to bow down to you. And that's the reason you can be humble with a big smile on your heart. Because your day's coming. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. For He will soon exalt you. So humble now, exaltation later. That's the meaning of the millennium. Father, thank You for sending Your Son to conquer our worst enemy and to provide for us an eternity of joy and victory and triumph. Thank You for including simple and sinful men like ourselves to be co-regents with You in heaven. And we pray that You'll lift up our hearts today, enable us to deal with the problems before us, not with a sense of depression, or a sense of, of being conquered, but a sense of great victory, knowing that things will not only work out in the end, but they will be absolutely glorious. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.